When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 59, and we are recording on December 6th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. (laughs) It's loud noises. (laughs) Hello from honorary 2017. Yes, we have decided, uh, because we're in charge of Mm -hmm. the universe, that 2016 is over, because no. So 2017 (laughs) started uh, December 1st. 2016 is dead to us. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's move on. <laughs> on we go. So 2017 is not allowed to claim any beloved musicians or actors, and <laughs> no one is allowed to have a personal crisis. So <laughs> if you guys could just cooperate with that, that would be amazing. <laughs> and that's my story. We ask for so little. <laughs> <laughs> just everything I want all the time. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. So for those of you who are new, um, like I said, this is a personalized reading recommendation show. So the way the show works is you send us your reading rec requests. These can be for your book club, for you, for a gift. Uh, You can email them to us, getbookedatbookwrite.com, or drop them in the form at the bottom of the show notes on the site. And if it's time sensitive, let us know in the subject line of the email or in the first line of uh, the form, if you use the form, so that we can try to answer it as quickly as possible. Um, we are emailing some people instead of responding on the show because we're, we've started to get uh, repeat questions. So if we've answered your show, answered your show, Lord, if we've answered your question already on the show, we will um, email you either new, new suggestions or a link to the show where answers to your question can be found. All right, let's go. Okay. So we're going to read question one, do our first sponsor, and then get gets to going. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what I just said. <laughs> Words, <laughs> we have them. Uh, our first question is from Jackie. I have a friend who loves storms, meaning she loves to read the blogs online about weather, such as hurricanes, as they develop and change, and what causes them to change course. This made me think she might really enjoy a book about the subject. I'm open to nonfiction or fiction, but would like something that feels realistic to mimic the feel of reading the weather columns online. What a gloriously specific question. Yeah, these are my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) One where you're like, what? Okay, okay. weather, yes. Um, But before we get into our recommendations, our first sponsor is Madison Reed, who started with a very simple mission to make really great at-home hair color with ingredients you can feel good about, because a lot of those at-home hair color boxes, which I am no stranger to, uh, often have things that are perhaps not amazing for your hair. Um, But Madison Reed is trying to bring you, like, salon-level hair dyeing at your house. So they use things like keratin and argan oil, which if you have curly hair is amazing, ginseng ginseng root extract, I can talk, Uh, other things like that that are very good for your hair and pamper it while you are getting your new color. If you go to their website, which is madison-reed.com, there is a neat color picker tool where you will put in what your current hair color is, what kind of direction you want to go with it, and it will help you find your perfect shade. And if you... Oh, they also promise 100% gray coverage if that is the thing that you're working towards. I don't know. I'm really excited about my grays. Like, I... (laughs) I'm just so happy that they're there. I can't really explain it. I think it's because my goal in life is to look art teacher-y. And that's like, you have to have grays, right? Like, that's... 
that's kind of... I'm getting one gray curl. Like, Ooh. all of my grays are growing together in a clump. Yes. That is curled, which I am... I'm leaving it. Because right. I, the more I look like Cruella DeVille, the better in, <laughs> it's my, just gonna, in my It's mind. like your Bellatrix slash Cruella DeVille. Yeah, this is the inspiration curl. for Bellatrix, was this, like, why is this one part of my head gray? I don't understand. That's amazing. Um, but anyway, if gray is not a thing you're into, which is legit, uh, they will preface 100% gray coverage. So, you should go to madison-read.com to find your perfect shade. And you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with the code BOOKED, B-O-O-K-E-D. So that's madison-read.com. 10% off plus free shipping if you use the code B-O-O-K-E-D. And thanks for sponsoring the show. All right, weather books. Amanda, go. Okay. All right. So my first one is maybe a little on the nose because that's how I do. Uh, But it's A Perfect Storm. Or The Perfect Storm, rather, uh, by Sebastian Younger? Ooh, J-U-N-G-E-R. A True Story of Men Against the Sea. You probably have seen this movie, or remember this movie coming out in the 90s uh, with, ooh, what's his name? Oh, no, George Clooney. Yeah, I was just going to say, wasn't wasn't the ER guy in that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, George Clooney. Um, So this is the story of the Andrea Gale, which was a small uh, fishing vessel that was, you know, fishing, as fishing vessels tend to do in the North Atlantic, and they were struck by um, a huge, like, freak storm out of the middle of nowhere in 1991, and the the, uh, the crew was lost. So they vanished without a trace. They didn't, like, they sent out no distress signals. They were the, um, they were, you know, never found or whatever. Uh, there were other boats in the area that survived the storm, um, but this particular crew of six men disappeared without a trace um so since there was no distress call and like once the storm hit no one ever heard from the crew after that um younger is really like the book is very hypothetical because there is no telling what actually happened to them obviously they drowned but nobody knows how or why or exactly um what happened to the boat or how long they survived the storm or if they even tried or like you know nobody knows any of that stuff so a lot of the book is like um the science of drowning, which is really fascinating, and like meteorolo- meteorological uh, stuff, and um, like what you would do in a situation like that if you were captaining a small vessel to try to survive. Uh, he also talks about like the Coast Guard rescue guys who go out into these crazy storms and helicopters and try to save people who were stranded uh, in the storm. So the story it's uh it's very what I mean obviously it's very much about the weather, but it's also about very much about these six guys and like their lives and. Um, it's very deadliest catch, like the rough and tumble kind of lifestyle that men who fish in the North Atlantic for a living um, have, um, and what they would have probably experienced as they were as their vessel was destroyed by the storm and they drowned. So, um, yeah, like very, very super weathery. cheerful. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's so interesting that I read this book after I saw the movie mm. um, when I was super young because my dad bought the book and so I read it. Because, you know, I read everything in the house. And um, it was really fascinating to me as, like, a 12-year-old girl, which I think is weird. That, But the fact that a book about weather and six men who you know are going to die could be interesting to, to, like, a 12-year-old, I think, says a lot about it. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's so cap- like, it's so captivating. And you get so wrapped up in the lives of these guys and, like, what happens to their families after they realize they're not coming home and all that kind of um, that kind of stuff. But the weather stuff is really fascinating. Like, the, the completely random freak turn of events... Um, and like the pressure systems and the cloud cover that happened that 
day and the days before the storm to lead to this like bizarre storm is, is I found it really interesting. So that's the perfect storm by Sebastian Younger. All right, my first pick I feel like is a very good one. I was really excited when this question came through because I was like, oh, I know. Um, so <laughs> it is Isaac Storm, A Man, A Time, and the Deadliest Hurricane in History by Eric Larson. Um, you might recognize Eric Larson's name because he wrote Devil in the White City, which had like a huge moment um, back when I was first a bookseller. Uh, everybody read it. There's like a movie maybe also. I don't know. Anyway, this is, I think, one of his less popular books because it's about a hurricane um, and not in like a sexy way. Um, it is about a man named Isaac Klein, who in uh, September of 1900 in Galveston, Texas, was the resident meteorologist for the U.S. Weather Bureau. And there he was getting all of this like data that he failed to interpret correctly. And then Galveston was submerged under a monster hurricane that like destroyed the town and killed 6,000 people. And it was one of the greatest natural disasters in American history. Um, and then, like, Klein himself was, like, devastated both because he didn't see it coming and also because he lost, he had a personal tragedy during the thing. So the book uses his actual telegrams and letters and reports and then, like, first, you know, person narratives from survivors and what we now know about how hurricanes work um, to put together a story of, like, why did he miss it and, like, what was going on with the Weather Bureau at this time? Um, so it's a really in-depth look at the life of one meteorologist and the storm he failed to see coming and like the consequences of that um but I remember being really like uh, you know telegrams about weather are not for everyone so but it sounds like your friend would be super interested in this um and I thought it was really fascinating because when you get to see all of the like little tiny moving pieces that contribute to a big moment in history like that's my jam so that is Isaac Storm by Eric Larson Okay, my second pick is a novel. It's Salvage the Bones by Jesmyn Ward. Um, and this is a story of Katrina. So mm -hmm. it's about a 14-year-old girl who lives in Mississippi uh, in a coastal town. Um, she is pregnant at 14. She's got, um, I think her mom is dead or gone, I don't remember. But her dad is an alcoholic and mostly is not around. So her and her three brothers are uh, basically fending for themselves. Um, they are so poor, like rural poverty. Um, and they know that the storm is coming. So her and her three brothers are trying to like stock up food, but there isn't any food around. They don't have any money. Um, her brother is into like dog fighting. There are pit bulls. Um, and so, oh, and I should mention like some pretty like gory dog fighting scenes, if that's a thing that bothers you. Um, and so it, the book takes place over uh, like about two weeks, uh, including a couple of chapters that cover the hurricane. But Katrina is a main character in the book. So um, the book is, you know, actually about this girl who's 14, found out she's just pregnant, and now has to figure out how to survive the, one of the deadliest hurricanes in modern memory. Um, but it's also very much about the impact of the storm on the area, which, and Jasmine Ward is from that area, so this is, it's very, like, close to her um, experience. Uh, and so the storm itself, despite the fact that it doesn't come at the very beginning of the book, it happens, I think, like midway, um, and it's only a couple of chapters, it, it like haunts. Like her, her weather writing is really fascinating. Like the, the air is oppressive. She writes Mississippi, like that sticky, airless, windless, humidity, ugh, kind of feeling um, that comes before the storm. And then, of course, the storm hits. Uh, and then what the place looks like after. Um, so it's not weather writing like, you know, storm chasers, but it's definitely uh, mostly about this this hurricane that we all remember. Uh, so that's, oh, and she won, she won something for, oh, what, uh, was it a National Book Award? She was shortly, yeah, or she the, was, uh, yeah. yeah, it was a National Book Award. 
Or was she shortlisted for the National Book Award? I can't remember which. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, it's an award-winning book, and Jasmine Ward is amazing. So that's Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. Yeah, intense cosign on that one. That was going to be my other pick, except Amanda got to it first. So, so when you pick the questions, <laughs> I know. I'm like in the spreadsheet before anybody else. So. It's not fair. Um, <laughs> my second pick for you is, so there's this guy, Brian Fagan, who wrote a bunch of solid pop histories that I read like years and years ago. And I remembered his name, so I went looking. He's an archaeologist. That's what he is. Um, and he wrote this book about a thing that I think is really an interesting period of history. Um, The book is called The Little Ice Age, How Climate Made History 1300 to 1850. And there actually was like a miniature ice age um, in that time period, 1300s on to about 1850, uh, that really affected modern Europe in particular. Um, And you can see it pop up in the writings of people during that time period, which I think is also super interesting, like in the fiction. Um, But what Fagan does is he goes and looks at it and talks about how all of that increasing cold influenced things like the North, no, excuse me, Norse exploration or the settlement of North America and the Industrial Revolution and all of these different points in history and how weather impacts that. Because, you know, I think a lot of us think of weather on like the micro level, like, oh, today it's raining, so I have to get out my umbrella or like, oh, I'm super annoyed by this like warm day in the middle of what should be sweater season. Um, but, you know, Fagan is looking at how like big trends and weather can change the course of human history, which is super interesting if you like that kind of thing, <laughs> which <laughs> I do. So and it sounds like your friend might do. So that is The Little Ice Age uh, by Brian M. Fagan. Okay, question two. This is from Anna. She says, uh, let's see, I'm doing the Read Harder Challenge and I'm stuck on the food memoir. I know this is probably going to be difficult, but do you know of any vegan food memoirs? I'm vegan myself, and since going vegan, I found it difficult to get into regular food memoirs. Um, I've already found will travel for vegan food but i was wondering if you knew of any others in particular by chefs thank you so much in advance okay um i had to crowdsource this one a little bit so i went back to the contributors and i could only find one um i asked them and we did have we had a surprising amount of vegans on the contributor core that i was unaware of but there you go okay so anyway the one that um was recommended to you is called the happy vegan it's by russell simmons who's like a hip-hop entrepreneur? <laughs> I knew when I saw his face, he looked he looked familiar. But anyway, uh, he's a hip-hop mogul. Um, so this is part memoir, part reasons why veganism is great, which you probably already know since you are a vegan already. But um, there are also... It's not just a memoir of why he made the decision to go vegan. It's also, like, wraps up his experiences with yoga and meditation into his veganism which i think is really interesting so it's not it's not just a memoir of like you know the eating meat is cruel and so i decided to do this and the other thing it's more about like conscious like the consciousness of, of eating the consciousness of um being fit and eating healthily and being low impact on the planet and, and all of that kind of thing so it isn't just about why you should you know in quotation marks um live a vegan lifestyle, but how to take that kind of further and how he himself has taken that further in his 
meditation practice and his um, and his yoga practice, which I think is really kind of fascinating. So that's the Happy Vegan. The subtitle is a guide to living a long, healthy, and successful life. Woo! By Russell Simmons. Um, I uh, f- forgive me. I don't have vegan or chef memoirs for you, but I do have two uh, vegetarian memoirs that uh, that attack the issue from different angles, which I think might be interesting to you. So the first one is Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer of you know fiction fame um, <laughs> of Jonathan Safran Foer fame <laughs> slash Natalie Portman fame. I don't know, but how, however you feel about him. In in that sense, um, he spent so he this is his memoir about how he spent a lot of time during his teenage and college years being like a half baked vegetarian. Um, and when he was about to have his first child, he was he was thinking seriously about the issue and like okay now that you're, I'm a parent, I'm supposed to have like morals and principles that I can pass along to my child and like. I should probably make a decision about this thing I've been vacillating about for years. Um, and so he does a ton of research into the food system, which is not great, as we all know. Um, and he looks also at, like, the circle of empathy concept, like, why do Americans eat chickens but not dogs? Or, like, you know, wh- why is it easier to sympathize with a chicken than a fish? Or all of these other questions um, that are sort of more emotional. And then he looks at the research as well. Uh, and he ties it all into, like, his own family history. Um, his grandmother was a Holocaust survivor and went through just, like, an insane ordeal where, you know, she was running through the woods, like, always on the move, trying to escape from German forces and was eating basically whatever she could find, except that she was Jewish, so she would never, like, even if when she was starving, she wouldn't eat pork. Um, And, like, things like that. And so he's looking at all of these things that influence us, like cultural and social and economic and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, and how we personally justify what we eat or don't eat. So I think it's a very interesting story about how we decide to make our choices, um, which is certainly something that you have to defend a lot when you're a vegan or a vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for a long time um and I'm now lapsed but like I remember just constantly having to like justify my choices to people you don't have to do it as much now but like 10 years ago man it was annoying um (laughs) so annoying uh so not about veganism per se but it is about like how we decide what we eat which I think ties into a lot of uh being a vegan and then it's funny I was I read interviews by this author before I read her memoir it's Helen Peppy? I don't actually know how to say her last name. And the memoir is called Pigs Can't Swim. And if you look at the interviews she's done, she mentions being a vegan. But in the book itself, it's actually... She's she's mostly talking about being a vegetarian. Um, and this is a really, I thought, actually amazing memoir in general. Um, she grew up the youngest of nine children in, like, sort of in rural Maine uh, in a lower-middle-class family. So they weren't poor, but they had nothing extra. Um, and their parent, her parents had to work all of the time, were very, you know, kind of short on emotional energy and actual time. Um, and they had nine children. So uh, she had a tough childhood. Um, in some ways. Um, And she talks about, like, you know, being the youngest of nine and poverty and also the way that the men in her family uh, were so 
in charge of just everything and how she reacted to that as a young girl. Um, there's also some trigger warning stuff. She was molested by a family friend. Um, so if that's hard for you, do not pick this up. But I think she deals with it all in a really interesting way. Um, I was very sucked into the way she told her story. Um, and she talks a lot about just like her natural affinity for animals because growing up in rural Maine, like they had horses and dogs and chickens and pigs and she couldn't understand why her family would like name the pig one day and eat the pig the next day, which is, you know, some kids are down with that and some kids are not. Um, and so uh, her coming to terms with her own experience with animals was very interesting. So that's Pigs Can't Swim by Helen Peppy, we're going to say is how you say that. <laughs> Wee! Wee! Okay, uh, next question is from April. I am looking for a couple of good books to give my mother as a Christmas gift. Growing up, I never saw her read anything that wasn't some sort of technical manual or medical nonfiction, but recently she has picked up and enjoyed a few novels. These include The Count of Monte Cristo, The Angel Makers, and The Dove Keepers. She told me that when she was younger, she enjoyed the Clan of the Cave Bear series and Anne of Green Gables series. Based off the above, I get the feeling that historical fiction might be a safe bet, though she said she was open to trying other genres. She's not interested in anything that is too complex slash difficult to follow, as she tends to take a while to get through what she is reading. She's also not interested in anything with excessive gore, violence, or sex. All right. Amanda, it's your turn to talk. Okay. Um, so it seems like your mom really likes historical fiction, and you said uh, she was open to trying other genres. So my first pick for you is A Study in Scarlet Women by Sherry Thomas, which is the first book in a new series that is a gender-flipped Victorian retelling of Sherlock Holmes, which I am just nuts for. I love it so much. I listen to it on audio, and it's really great. Um, so in this book, Charlotte Holmes is a genius. She is born into a Victorian upper-class family, um, which of course means that she's expected to get married. Um, she doesn't want to do that <laughs> because she is, you know, she's Sherlock Holmes, basically. So she's a little bit, uh, like, mildly sociopathic, kind of, um, and much more interested in the life of the mind than she is in having children or any of that sort of stuff, what she would consider kind of blatant nonsense. Um, so she makes this deal with her father that if she... Um, doesn't get married if she manages to not get to, to stay single until she's 25 and doesn't cause any like big roaring scandals then he will give her the money to go educate herself so that she can open a school and earn some independence uh, and teach some girls to um you know how to like fare for themselves basically so the time comes comes and goes her father reneges on his promise to her and so she um has to go off and, and try and find her own way. Being the super genius that she is, she finds a very unconventional way that involves scandalizing the entire town. Um, and then she gets embroiled in a mystery, as a good Sherlock Holmes novel, uh, you know, would. She, the, the, like, the way that Sherry Thomas writes the accepted tropes of Sherlock Holmes stories, and also the characters are really great. So, like, Watson in this book is uh, an old, or not old, I think she's, she's probably in her 60s, an elderly widow, uh, is Watson, who's like really, really super wealthy and takes Charlotte under her wing as her like companion, but in reality is just funding her new investigative service. Um, and of course, she has to pretend that Sherlock Holmes is a real person um, so that she can work with the cops to solve all these mysteries. Anyway, the way that Sherry Thomas handles like the gender issue in a flipped Sherlock Holmes is really, really great. Um, and so it's fast, it's fast paced, it, it moves really quickly, um, it's funny. Um, there's a lot of uh, like nods to the original, which you don't have to have read the original Sherlock Holmes or even seen any of the movies or anything like that. Like they're so embedded in like our 
pop culture subconscious that your mom will get, I think, all of the jokes. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's fast paced, it's genre historical. I think she'll really like it. So that's A Study in Scarlet Women by Sherry Thomas. All right, my first pick for this is Homegoing by Yaa Jesse, which is spelled G-Y-A-S-I. This book kind of took us all by storm this year, and I think that given her love for historical fiction and um, the Alice Hoffman, I was thinking in particular, and The Count of Monte Cristo, actually. That book is no no joke. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorites. Uh, I think she would get a lot out of this one. It is the story, uh, it starts back in Ghana um, during the slave trade with two half-sisters, one of whom is sold into slavery and the other one is married to a British slaver. And then it follows their descendants up to, into the modern day and maybe like slightly forward, it's hard to tell. Um, And I think that, I mean, it's about a very serious topic. It's about slavery. It's about black lives um, internationally and in North America. Uh, But it's, I don't think the gore or violence was excessive. I think it was handled very well. Um, And I think that it is an amazing multi-generational novel. You don't spend a ton of time with any one character. So each chapter is a new perspective. Uh, But what you get with those short sort of almost choppy chapters is this amazing uh, sense of continuity and also a really fascinating look at different parts of the world and different people in it. So I think it would be a really rewarding read for her and it sounds like um, it would fit with what she's interested in. So that is Homegoing by Ya Jessie. All right, my second pick for you I picked because she likes The Count of Monte Cristo, so I, I felt like I had a lot of leeway here. Um, so it's East of Eden by John Steinbeck, which is an equally hefty um, and sort of plot-heavy and character-laden um, classic. Um, it, I mean, it's not as long as The Count of Monte Cristo. I feel like I need to say that. Like, it's not as long like, as The Count of Monte Like, what is as long as The Count of Monte Cristo? <laughs> Maybe nothing. Maybe nothing is as long as The Count of Monte Cristo. Perhaps nothing. Um, Anyway, so East of Eden is a modern, you know, whatever, quote-unquote, not biblical retelling of the Cain and Abel story. Um, It starts off kind of in the eastern part of the U.S., and then it follows two brothers. One of them moves out uh, west and, like, a, you know, go-forth young man into America. Um, He has twin boys uh, with a woman named Kathy, who is a complete and total psychopath, like, literal, actual psychopath. Um, and then the Cain and Abel story unwinds in the lives of these twin boys. Um, because it's Steinbeck, the, the, the environment and the area is very much a character. And also this whole book is about like the nature of God and free will. So, which I feel like a lot of the count of Monte Cristo is too. Um, but it's wrapped up in like family drama and struggles, um, and a a little bit of, eh, it's kind of violent. I mean, you know, Cain and Abel, so, Also, Kathy being the complete, like, she's just, I love this character so much. Like, I'm going to pause Kathy rant. Like, she's so evil. (laughs) And apparently (laughs) she's based on John John Steinbeck's ex. Like, he took the worst parts of his ex and exaggerated them to, like, the nth degree and created this just ice-cold woman who everything she does is calculated. Like, John Steinbeck's, like, talent for writing just the most strange characters is oh Kathy Kathy read it for Kathy I need to talk about Kathy anyway so for anybody who's looking for a Gone Girl comp yes, basically like, you're saying 
Yes. <laughs> but, but like she's not the main character, but kind of. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I can't like go into more without completely spoiling it. But um, he like takes this, the, the hooker with the heart of gold trope and just whoop, just totally pulls it inside out and just makes her crazy in, in a ooh, ooh, she's chilling. Um, anyway, that was a weird rant. So East of Eden, long, epic historical fiction, really plot plot heavy like I feel like when people think of classics they think oh long trudging boring but East of Eden is a mover like it's a page turner um, as most of his books tend to be so yeah so that's East of Eden by John Steinbeck with the crazy Kathy character Um, my second pick for this is The Steady Running of the Hour by Justin Goh, which is both a contemporary novel and a historical novel. What? Twofer. Um, <laughs> and it is told by a young uh, student in America who gets contacted by this British lawyer who is like, so you might be the heir to a giant fortune, maybe, mm. but we need you to find documents proving it because we can't do that for legal reasons, blah, blah, blah. So, and this, the narrator is like, uh, okay, because he doesn't have much going on. Um, he's post his college degree. I think he, I can't remember if he's like in graduate school or not, but he's a history person and he just doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. So he's like, fine, I might as well go to Europe and try to dig up ancient records about this ancestor I may or may not have had. Like, sure, why not? Uh, so he goes to London and then ends up going all over Europe um, in this quest to find documentation about um, one the person that they think is his relative. So the, And then the historical part is where you find out what was actually happening um, in his past. It's the 1920s, and there is this uh, English soldier slash mountain climber named Ashley Walsingham who dies on Mount Everest, um, and he leaves his fortune to his former lover, who he never legally married um and there's like there there's a question about a child's parentage that goes back to her um so you get to know uh ashley and imogen who are the historical characters you follow tristan around modern day europe as he's trying to dig up these records um and it's just i just loved it so much it was really engrossing it's like the perfect winter read um it's nicely paced it's not too fast it's not too slow there's not like a lot of excessive gore or violence or anything like it's just a really lovely story about people uh so that is the steady running of the hour by justin go okay it's you oh yes okay woo um so this is from maria she says i'm a first generation australian and my family immigrated from malta back in the 60s and 70s as we were kept out in the 20s through the early 60s due to the white Australia policy. My aunt was married in 19, and her and my uncle immigrated two days later. She's now turning 70, and as she gets older, she gets more and more homesick and is turning to books that help remind her of growing up. So books mostly set in the southern Mediterranean, pre- or post-war up until the 70s. She's exhausted pretty much all Maltese authors, they're only a handful, uh, and also all of the island's folklore. She reads mostly fiction, but is reading nonfiction about the island's history lately. I've given her copies of all of Elena Ferrante's work and also the Corfu trilogy by Gerard Durrell. She loved these as they reminded her of growing up and her friends and family that she left behind. I was hoping for similar recommendations. Okay, um, I'll just keep going. So my first one is Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter, and this is a, um, it's part historical fiction, part contemporary, so it goes back and forth uh, between the past and the present. So it starts in 1962 on um, the coastline, on an, at an inn, excuse me, at an inn on the Italian coastline. Um, the innkeeper is, uh, like, they're, they're not poor, but they're not, you know, it's 
they're not wealthy. It's not like a luxury inn. Um, and so the innkeeper like looks up one day and sees a tall, like blonde white woman coming in to his port on a boat and is totally confused about what's happening. And then he realizes or learns um, that she's an American actress. She's a starlet. She's sick. And she's holding up for a few days at this inn um, in order to wait for her agent to come get her and take her off to Switzerland for treatment. Um, so she thinks that she's uh, dying, basically. And she has, like, escaped the set of Cleopatra. So, like, the the Richard Burton, um, oh, my gosh, Elizabeth ah, Taylor, Elizabeth Taylor uh, movie set of Cleopatra. That is happening, like, in the background. Um, so that happens. And then you're... Then you jump forward, and the story moves to today in Los Angeles, uh, and you're following an American screenwriter, um, and then, like, an elderly Italian man shows up on the studio's back lot looking for this woman that he saw at his hotel tickets earlier. So it's very much like... um, one of those books where you follow seemingly unrelated but obviously totally related narratives until the author kind of ties them up in a neat bow at the end. And so if she's looking for, um, like, place novels, you know, books that evoke that sort of Mediterranean atmosphere, then this is really it. Like, it, they're the heat and the sun-drenched, like, laying on the rocks and the food and all of that. So it does go, you go back and forth between L.A. Um, and Italy throughout the book, but the but the Italy parts are like so well written, and just Walter, man, like such good sentences, and there's like some romance at the center of the book. Um, it's just really heartbreaking and like nice. I just, it's just like a pleasant reading experience. So it's Beautiful Ruins by Just Walter. Uh, my first pick for this is the Inspector Montalbano series, which is set in Sicily uh, by Andrea Camilleri. The first book in the series is The Shape of Water, and I was checking, I was double checking around because some mystery series was like, this one has been going on for a long time, um, and some of them get better as you go along, but everything I double checked was like, no, no, read them from the beginning. Um, and so they are crime novels, um, like kind of on the noir side, so if she's not interested in like, crime. This might not be for her, but uh, they do get really into, like, the nitty-gritty of Sicilian life. So, like, in the first one, um, the 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 crime happens in this like overgrown sort of abandoned lot where uh all of the hookers take their johns and a very eminent like preeminent catholic leading politician is found dead um and they're trying to the sicilian you know authorities are trying to keep it hushed up but of course our inspector montalbano who is very honest and like streetwise and like doesn't want to let it go um is looking into it because he just feels Feels like something is wrong. Uh, it's the series was started in the '90s, and there's definitely some like, you know, homophobic language and like not great stuff for women and all of those things. Um, but they really do capture that noir spirit. Um, so if she's a fan of mysteries and is interested in like getting a feel for Sicily, uh, you know, out of her books, then I think the series would be a good one. Um, they are well written and like compelling in that noir way. So the first one is The Shape of Water, and that's the uh, Commissario Montalbano, uh, number one. Okay, my second one is Honey Olive's Octopus by Christopher Bakken, and this is uh, takes place in Greece, so it's not Italy, but it's you know, the same kind of Mediterranean sort of flavors. Um, and this, it's like a combination memoir sort of travelogue and food writing. Um, so Christopher Bakken, he goes to Greece, and he is take, he's looking at the history and the cultural context of eight basic elements of Greek food. So um, there are olives, bread, fish wine, honey, cheese, uh, and there's 
more that I'm not remembering. Um, anyway, but like every section, each section of the book is separated into one of these um, areas of food. So as he's traveling through Greece, he's looking for the uh, the ar- not archaeological. No, no. Um, Arch- no, not architectural either. Oh my god, agricultural. Hello, <laughs> the agricultural history of uh, crops in Greece. So uh, you know, like why, where olives came from, how they made it to the Greek islands, and uh, why they're such a staple in Greek food. Um, he travels to places in Greece that he thinks makes the best of each thing. Um, so he goes to like a particular spot. Uh, Kathira, I think, and eats thyme honey and spends like a whole chapter talking about how uh, the weather uh, of and of that area creates this particular kind of honey because the bees do this, that, and the other thing or whatever. It's like so in-depth and and like fascinating and weird. <laughs> like it's weirdly obsessive, the details he goes to um, about, uh, you know, octopi and how they end up, or no, it's octopuses actually, uh, and how they end up in uh, staples of Greek cuisine. It's gonna make you so hungry and also you will like immediately be looking up flights <laughs> to Greece, which are extremely expensive, I discovered in my uh, experience. <laughs> Not <laughs> so that you that I just went to like, <laughs> Yep, nope, sure did. Uh, and then I, that didn't work out, so I went, to, I went to the fresh market and bought some olives. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so that's Honey, Olives, Octopus, Adventures at the Greek Table by Christopher Backen. Uh, my second pick is also a mystery, but not a noir. Um, it is This Rough Magic by Mary Stewart, who is an author that I have adored since I was a teenager. Um, she also wrote a, like, fantasy trilogy about, uh, King Arthur, but she was an amazing mystery writer as well. Uh, and this is about two young, um, English women who go for a holiday on the island of Corfu. Uh, Lucy is an actress and she is, like, not getting any parts, so she figures she might as well go, uh, to Corfu, which is the alleged locale for Shakespeare's The Tempest, which I didn't know, and I think is super interesting. Um, and then there's this, like, guy who's making a mess of things, and she's like, whatever. And then all of a sudden, there is a mystery, of course. Um... A corpse gets washed ashore, and she is suddenly in the middle of this, uh, you know, like, what happened, and is somebody else next, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, but I mentioned it specifically because you mentioned the Gerard Durrell Corfu trilogy, so I thought this might match up. So that is This Rough Magic by Mary Stewart. Okay, before we continue, we're going to do our second sponsor really quickly, and our second sponsor is Comic Bento, which is the original graphic novel subscription box service. So I'm sure you're familiar with... Uh, subscription box services. They're everywhere now, and there are tons of, of bookish ones. So this is one for comics fans. So every month you get a box that contains 60 to $80 worth of graphic novels. They are shipped to you, obviously. Uh, every month they are picked based around a different theme, and they can be classics, hidden gems, like new releases. They're very highly curated. Uh, so whether you are a longtime comics reader or you're completely new to reading comics or graphic novels, it's a great pick. Um, so for December, from December 1st to December 31st, obviously, the um, theme for this month is Marvel Comics. Uh, they're doing a publisher spotlight. So the box will have two titles from Marvel and two more from their publishing peers. Um, and so you can go to Comic Bento, and if you use the um, discount code RIOT15, one word, then you get 15% off your subscription. 
Um, this is also a great gift. I mean, if you have somebody that you're trying to buy a gift for who, you know, is a Marvel fan, even if it's like the movies and the person is not in, hasn't like any experience with comics, it's a great intro. Um, and there's also a, a video game title in this box, which is nice. So also a great gift for video gamers uh, on your list. So yeah, go to Comic Bento and enter the co- discount code Riot15 and you can get 15% off. And thank you for sponsoring the show. Okay, question five. Oh, it's you. It's oh, it's you. me. Uh, yes. This question is from Kristen uh, and is a two-part. The first one, time-sensitive, is books for children. I love books that help children with perspective-taking, empathy, and being courageous. I am shopping for a variety of ages of children, infants up to age 10, both girls and boys. I'm very bad at figuring out age-appropriate books. Girl, I feel you. (laughs) Uh, So your help is greatly appreciated. I need these books for Christmas presents. My second question, if you are able to answer, is for me. I've been enjoying reading race-based satires, and I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for books in this category or gender-based satires. I prefer fiction, but I'm open to nonfiction as well. Alright, so we kind of divided this. Amanda's going to take the kids question, and I'm going to take the the race-based satires, so go forth, Amanda. Okay, so this is a great question. I really like it. So my first one is for younger readers, like it's a picture book, so toddlers, mostly. Um, It's called The Quiet Book. It's by Deborah Underwood and Renata Luska. And this is such a sweet little book, and I love it. So it's probably my favorite book from my kids, you know, days when they were into picture books um, or board books or whatever. So every single page has a different kind of quiet. So there's, um, you know, hide-and-seek quiet, and there's, um, you know, I dropped my sandwich jelly side up on the floor quiet, (laughs) and... um, like last kid being picked up from school quiet. And so it tells you, the book tells you what kind of quiet the book, the page is about. And then there's a picture of that thing happening and it's all animals. Uh, the characters are animals and they're really cutely drawn. Um, but it, it's so good at, at, sh- at, at like showing the facial expressions that come with certain kind of emotions and certain aspects of quietness. So, uh, so like the, what, like the last kid picked up at school quiet is obviously a sad kind of quiet. And I remember reading like reading this to my kids and my kids looking like they don't get the words necessarily, but they could look at the picture and understand, oh that kid is that 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 well it's not a kid and the I think it's a bear. That bear is sad, you know. And it it was really helpful for helping them like contextualize facial expressions and emotions. Um so it's a good empathy building, just sweet, adorable little story. So that's The Quiet Book by Deborah Underwood. Um, I'll just go ahead and do the second one because we've got different themes. Uh, my second pick for you is Mango, excuse me, Mango, Abuela, and Me. It's by Meg Medina and Angela Dominguez. Meg Medina is an amazing uh, author. She does uh, like YA, middle grade. She was a book right live and I met her and she's my new best friend. Yes. And oh my gosh, I love her so much. <laughs> um, so she wrote Yucky Degaldo Wants to Kick Your Ass and Burn Baby Burn and a bunch of books I'm sure you've heard of. So this is her kids' book. Um, it's also a picture book, but it's not a board book. So older kids, uh, my kids are five and I still read it to them and they really enjoy it. So this is about a little girl named Mia whose grandmother, who used to live very far away, has come to stay with, with Mia and her parents. Um, the night before, the night she like comes and moves into their house, Mia tries to read her favorite book to her abuela, which is Spanish for grandmother, and she realizes that Abuela doesn't can't read the books uh, can't read the words. She doesn't read English. She doesn't really speak English. And so, throughout the course of the book, Mia and her abuela teach each other their respective languages. So Mia 
helps teach her grandmother a little bit of English. Her grandmother helps teach her some Spanish and introduce her to some of her family's cultural um, uh, heritage and, like, personal family traditions and things like that. They get a parrot. Like, it's just very sweet. They name the parrot Mango. Um, And I think this is a good pick for kids right now, especially for for teaching them empathy for people with families that aren't necessarily like theirs. Um, my kids, my kids have uh, a couple of classmates who, who speak very little English. And so I, I, I picked this book up as like a, I don't know, like a, this is, it's not an other, you know, they're not others. They're just little kids like you. And you know, it's like, here's how I'm going to teach you lessons with Meg Medina. <laughs> this is how I parent. Um, so, and it was, it was helpful. Like they, you know, they're five. They don't understand nation statehood and countries and languages and why people speak of their language. Like that stuff is completely like, doesn't make any sense to them at all. So it was helpful. Um, so yeah, so that's Mango, Abuela and Me by Meg Medina. And the illustrator is Angela Dominguez. And the parrot is adorable. Anyway, it's just so cute. I just love it. I'm gonna stop now. I want a parrot named Mango. I know. <laughs> and the, the illustration is so brilliant. Like the wing looks like a mango because he's colored like a uh, okay, let's talk about race-based satire. Woo! Yeah. Um, <laughs> Happy days with Jen and Amanda. I know. Uh, I am assuming that you, Kristen, have already read The Sellout by Paul Beatty, because that is sort of the ultimate in that category right now. Um, but if you haven't, go pick it up, because it's exactly what you're looking for. But I'm not going to talk about it, because I'm assuming you've read it, um, or it is on your radar. So my two other picks for you. Uh, the first one is Pim by Matt. Matt Johnson, P-Y-M. Matt Johnson is amazing, obviously. Uh, He has written so many great books. And this one is a satire that just, oh my gosh, it like knocked me over in the best possible way. I thought it was so intense and like so uncomfortably funny, which is what satire can be. Um, When done correctly and well. Uh, I'm subtweeting now. I'm going to stop. Okay, I'm stopping. Um, It's about a professor of American literature named Chris Gaines, who is black, um, but has basically been, like, let go from his job at the university because he's not, like, black enough. Like, he's not teaching hip-hop or, like, slavery, so, uh, and they only have room, quote-unquote, for, you know... Uh, one black professor and so they're replacing him and he's booted um and he is obsessed with poe he's obsessed with poe's only novel which is called the narrative of arthur gordon pym of nantucket which is a real thing i discovered um and he then finds a narrative like an old primary manuscript uh slave narrative that seems to confirm that this novel was actually based on real life so he decides that since he's got nothing else going on he's gonna put together a crew and try to find this land that Poe is describing in the novel. Um, He puts together an all-black crew uh, to follow uh, the novel's trail to the South Pole, and hijinks ensue. Um, It is just so scathingly funny. I I mean, it was a really incredible read, Um, and I think it definitely fits with what you were looking for. So that is Pym uh, by Matt Johnson. Uh, And then my second book is actually not a satire, but it is a really funny book, that revolves around race, uh, and that is The Wangs versus the World by Jade Chang, who has been on the show before. You should go back and listen to her episode with us at Book Right Live if you haven't already, because she is an excellent book recommender. Um, but her debut novel is about a Chinese immigrant, uh, Chinese family where the father uh, is was 
like brought the or came to America to make his fortune. Um, and so the children have all grown up in America. And his business has gone bust. It's 2008, the economy is collapsing, and his cosmetics empire is, like, going bankrupt because he made some poor financial decisions. Um, and so now he's, like, going to get all the people together in his, you know, station wagon, uh, take off before his creditors can catch up with him, and, like, drive across the country to his oldest daughter's place in, I think she lives in Vermont or upstate New York, something like that. Uh, and then they're going to go to China and like reclaim ancestral lands or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is so funny because you get perspective from all of the different members of the family. So there's Charles, who's like a really brash man who just thinks that he deserves the world and is really frustrated that he's not getting it. Um, his college-age son, Andrew, like, wants to be a stand-up comedian, and there's some sections of the book that are his, like, awkward attempts at stand-up while they're on the road. Uh, Grace is in private high school and is, like, obsessed with her fashion Instagram. Um, and uh, then you have the oldest daughter, Sana. Sina? Sana? I'm not sure. Um, who was, like, an art ingenue and then has kind of gone into hiding now. Uh, and you get all of their different perspectives and their interactions. And so it's about family dysfunction and it's about, you know, their experiences as Chinese-Americans and all of these different things. Um, and it is really, really funny. It is not satire, but it's hilarious. And I think you should read it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's The Wangs Versus the World by Jade Chang. I think you should read it. That is like the motto of Get Booked. (laughs) BT Dubs. By the way. Please to read. (laughs) Please to read. Okay. So our last question is from Alyssa. She says, I'm a senior in college. I'm in the middle of one of the most stressful semesters of my college career. I haven't been able to find time to read anything outside of schoolwork for months, and I've really missed books. I'm looking for something fun and engrossing to read over winter break to get me out of my reading slump. Genre doesn't bother me. I will read anything except horror. Some of my favorite comfort books come to words. Some of my favorite comfort books include the Queen's Thief series by Megan Whalen Turner and anything by Jane Austen. Okay, I will continue. So I just used your favorite comfort books as a jumping off point <laughs> to recommend uh, the things that I picked. So the first one is Sense and Sensibility by Joanna Trollope, not by Jane Austen. Um, I just realized, like I just saw this morning when I was looking at my notes for the show, that Joanna Trollope is the niece of Anthony Trollope. Like I was wondering. I was wondering. I had no idea. I mean, you know. That's kind of amazing. I get Trollope doesn't sound like it would be like a complete like a super common name, but I figure anyway, that's completely irrelevant to what I'm saying. But there you go. Factoid of the day. Um, so last year, uh, no, not last year, a couple of years ago, probably two years ago, publishers did uh, something called, they were calling the Austin Project, where they got famous authors to retell in, a, in modern day um, the novels of Jane Austen. So like Alexander McCall Smith did Emma, Val McDermott uh, did Northanger Abbey, which is such a good, that was a good Good author pick, publishing. Um, so Joanna Trollope redid Sense and Sensibility. You're a Jane Austen fan, so you know the plot of Sense and Sensibility, but for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, it's about a family, uh, a mother and her th- three, yeah, three daughters who are living in, you know, th- their father's home. Um, the dad dies, the house goes to his son from another marriage, uh, and so the mom and the three kids find themselves homeless and in a state of newly discovered genteel poverty. And of course, in Regency England, that's one thing. In 2013, that's an entirely different thing. So it's the same characters and the same plot. Like Joanna Child didn't change anything. She just moved it to the, you know, the late, the, the 2000s or whatever, which completely changes the entire tone of the book because you're going from 
you know, the genteel poverty of 1817 or whatever it is that Sense and Sensibility takes place to these three girls and their mom who were super wealthy and then find themselves no longer super wealthy, but they still expect to live that way. So, like, it, it, it goes, like, the tone of it just becomes super, like, gossipy and Kardashian-ish and, like, really, you know, Perez Hilton. And it's just fun. Like, it's fun and everyone is the worst, if that's a thing that you can imagine. Like, it's like reading 300 pages of a celebrity gossip mag and watching, um, I don't know, really, really rich, spoiled people realize that sometimes you have to work for a living, which is a little bit satisfying to me. Um, but it was really <laughs> interesting to me. Like, it's not just, you know, sense and sensibility with an iPod. <laughs> it's like completely like the class struggles are totally different. And Joanna Trollope really pokes at that. And like she pokes at how if the three girls were boys, how we would feel completely differently about the story of sense and sensibility. Because, you know, in 2013, that's not women can get jobs, you know, which is different from, you know, the Regency era and women can inherit also different, but like these three just don't feel like it, which is weird. Um, but I really enjoyed it despite the fact that I just wanted to set everyone on fire. Like I really did. Um, like I generally <laughs> do when I'm watching the Kardashians, like, you know, it's this thing really like, your life. I don't get it. I don't get your life, but I can't stop watching. I don't understand. Anyway. So I think it'll get you out of a slump. It's super fun. Totally like not brainless, but, um, candy it's very candyish so that sense and sensibility by joanna trollope it's the first book in the jane austen project all right my first pick for you i i love megan whalen turner also and so by this i take it to mean you're open to fantasy uh so i picked for you roses and rot by cat howard which yes i know it's such a good like fantasy is great when you're reading some because you're like i just need to get out of my head um and this is a good book for that it's about two sisters named imogen and marin who are both very talented uh marin is a dancer and imogen is a writer and they both get into this really fancy artist's retreat. Um, they're in their 20s. It's postgraduate. Uh, and they are both at like sort of a crossroads moment in their careers. So they're like, okay, we're going to go to this art retreat. And we are going to like make art and have time to make art. Because it's really hard to do that when you're also like trying to pay your rent. And, you know, go to classes or whatever else it is that you're doing post-grad. Um, and they... But there's a twist. There's several twists. The first twist is that this is the first time Imogen and Marin will have seen each other in a really long time. Um, and part of that is because their mother is the worst. She's abusive. She's horrible. She stifled them uh, like really, really terribly. Um, and they kind of were each other's uh, protectors until one of them got a, until Imogen got a chance to like get out early and so this has changed their relationship seriously so this is like sort of they're considering it as like a reunite uh, reunion that's the word um, the other twist is that this is not a normal arts retreat it's actually run by the Fae what um, <laughs> <laughs> which when you think about it makes perfect sense like fairies love art so why wouldn't they like run an artist retreat to attract all of the artists to them and then they can you know do their crazy fairy things uh so and that's not a spoiler like it's pretty clear from the get-go I think it's in the back cover copy um and so you know hijinks also ensue there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens um but ultimately it's a story about sisters and then also magic which is the thing that I really love uh so that is Roses and Rot by Cat Howard okay so because you like the Queen's Thief series I, I went with another um <clears throat> 
touched girl in royal fantasy land kind of book. And it's The Sin Eater's Daughter by Melinda Salisbury. Uh, and this one is dark. Like, it's it's dark for a while, I think. So Twyla is the main character. She's 16. She lives in, this, she lives in a castle. Um, she's engaged to the prince. And, you know, she's got a very high status, except she's also hated universally. And no one will speak to her. And she can't keep a guard because she isn't a member of the court. She's not a courtier. She's not a noble. She's the executioner. So she is touched by the goddess, as they say in the book. She's uh, chosen um, by fate to be able to kill with a single touch. So she touches people, they die, right? So she every week she is taken down into the basement. Whoever's been accused of treason or has committed a crime punishable by death, she's the one who does it. Um, and so because of her, the way that they, the way that this universe ties her ability to do that to the religion, she is going to marry the prince and solidify the um, status and power of the people on the throne. So the, the what you call it, uh, not universe, world, whatever, country, eh, is ruled by a, queen who is very cruel and frightening and scary and uses um, her religious faith to manipulate Twyla and, and into doing everything that she wants her to do. Um, all of this is happening while she gets a new guard. Twyla gets a new guard who shows up because her guards can't handle being around her for too long, who doesn't seem scared of her and like is kind of able to look her in the face and talk to her like a human being. And so, of course, there's a little bit of like a romantic thing happening there, but she's supposed to marry the prince. And so blah, 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 blah. Lots of things happening, much shenanigans. And plus, she can't touch people because dying would be bad. Um, so she has to decide what she wants to do. Does she want to follow her heart, abandon her post, run off into the woods, live by herself, marry this guard guy? Does she want to do what she considers to be her duty and marry the prince and do what the queen tells her to do? Because if she doesn't, the gods will punish her, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's very complicated. There's a lot of religious stuff happening. Uh, it's, it's violent. Um, it's very violent. And it's just, it's just interesting. It's an interesting YA fantasy that takes place in this very claustrophobic-feeling royal setting. So it's The Senator's Daughter by Belinda Salisbury, and it is the first in the series, which you can binge read over winter break, I promise. This makes me want a Girls Who Can't Touch People reading list. Like you it's got a thing. this one, you got Shattered, that one. Yeah. And also thing. Rogue from mm -hmm. the X-Men. Okay, sorry. Minor Rogue's thing. power is the best power. I mean, seriously. <laughs> the power to have all the other powers? How is that like, not the best power? how is that not the best? She's obviously Like, it's objectively the best. Okay, anyway. The actual best. Uh, <laughs> it's okay, you have a Rogue stripe now, too. I do, I do. So, uh, my second pick for you is because you said... You would read anything, and also you love Jane Austen, and I am recommending you a romance, because what better de-stressing book can there be? There cannot. Uh, so it is The Duchess War by Courtney Milan, who we love, um, and this is the first in the Brothers Sinister series, which is a great series, so there is more when you're done. And this is about a woman named Minerva Lane, who's, like, a very quiet, like, demure woman who is that way deliberately. It's not because she's shy. It's not because, like, she's... Nobody's ever talked to her. Like, she has a secret in her history, and she just doesn't want people to notice her um, for legit reasons. So she has sort of made her life about not being noticed. Uh, and she's changed her name. She does, like, there's some actual, like, you know, people don't really know who she is, and she wants to keep it that way. 
And then, of course, there's this duke. There's always a duke. Uh, <laughs> always a duke. How many dukes does Regent oh England have? So many. There's like jokes about that in Romance Landia. Like if like somebody made, I think, an epic list of all of the dukes and like how many actual dukes there really were versus how many romance dukes there. Are. Anyway, side note. Um, and so uh, this Duke of Claremont, Robert, um, is actually uh, I don't want to spoil anything. He comes to town and he messes everything up because that's what dukes do. Um, and so the plot unfolds from there. I don't want to give too much away because I didn't really know much about this plot when I read it, and it was really delightful uh, the way it all unfolded. And, yeah, this whole series is great. Uh, so I think you will really enjoy it. It's got a lot of that, like, you know, ballroom drama, social cutting, and people, like, being snide at each other that Jane Austen is so good at, plus a romance, which Jane Austen is also really good at. Um, but Courtney Mullen works in a lot of the cultural and social and political history of the time, along with her romance, which I really enjoy. It rounds everything out really nicely. So that's The Duchess War by Courtney Mullen. And we're done. And that's our show. Woo! Okay, so you can go rate us on iTunes and leave us a review. Find us on social media. I'm at I'm Amanda Nelson. Jen is at Jen IRL. Jen with two N's. And thank you so much to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. We will talk to you all next week. Bye.